This is an ABC podcast. Edwina Farley and this is a Country Breakfast on RN. Vegan and vegetarian diets are big news right now, but so are carnivorous ones. So this morning, we're all about getting the best out of meat. These are connections that are being made for farmers that really understand that not only what they're doing as far as good husbandry practices and, and, and stewards of the land have to do with, with um, positive approaches to the treatment of animals and the environment, but also there's no irony to the fact that an animal that's raised better actually also tastes better. A slow meat masterclass later in the program. First though, let's have a look at the big stories in rural news, including this week, moves to introduce an agricultural visa has started causing a bit of friction between Nationals MPs and the Liberals. Good morning, Clint Jasper. Good morning, Edwina. Now, as we know on this segment, aside from fixing up mobile black spots, which is always the number one thing that ag industry wants, lately uh, moving close to the top of that is an agricultural visa. There are already working holiday visas and the Pacific Worker Scheme, but a new visa would essentially allow more seasonal workers into the country to pick the crops. Now, in a leak from Cabinet to the Australian Australian newspaper this week, it's been revealed the idea caused serious concern in the government, mainly because the new visa, which is championed by the Nationals, threatens to undermine the Pacific Workers Scheme, which has already angered some of those governments. That in turn has raised serious concerns about damaging our diplomatic relations with those Pacific governments, which would damage our own efforts to head off growing Chinese influence in the region. The Agriculture Minister, Nationals MP David Littleproud, has been given three weeks to work with the Department of Foreign Affairs, Home Affairs and Jobs to bring a revised proposal to Cabinet. Farmer Brad Frankhauser from Southern Victoria says farmers need the additional visa to cope with labour shortages. I think long term we'd need more than just the Pacific Islanders. I think you know, the, the draw on, on casual labour in agriculture is quite, quite large and I don't think the Pacific Islanders alone will, will fill that void. Uh, so I think anything we can do to attract the same backpackers or the same you know, workers back year on year would be a thing. And a lot of farmers talk about backpackers being mm. a vital source for farm labour, but it sounds like the number of those workers still hasn't recovered from the whole backpacker tax debacle. The NT Farmers Association says there's been a decline in the number of mango pickers since the introduction of the backpacker tax. The legislation introduced in 2016 sees working holiday makers taxed at 15% of each dollar. The Sweetest Job Campaign, jointly funded by the association, hopes to recruit territory residents to the unfilled jobs. But Workforce Planning Coordinator Isla Connolly says the tax is not the only reason picker numbers are low. It's not the best weather at the moment here. A lot of backpackers move on after the dry season to nicer climate. So there's a lot of other contributing factors. Yeah, picking fruit on the farms is not a passion project for <laughs> backpackers, you'd have to say. We've heard a lot from farmers in New South Wales and Queensland about the drought, but the impact was uh, the impact on South Australia was highlighted this week with a visit there from the National Drought Coordinator. 
Yeah, the Prime Minister's drought coordinator, Major General Stephen Day, has made his first, albeit brief, visit to South Australia to meet with industry and local government. It comes as the state government formally acknowledges parts of SA are in drought, with winter crop forecasts in a serious slump. Grain Producers SA says the South Australian season has slipped back significantly and up to 40% of the state could now be affected by drought. The grain crop estimate for this year has been revised down to 5.8 million tonnes, and that's more than 2 million tonnes below average. Chairman Wade Dabinat says some regions in the state are on track to have their best year ever, but the numbers of areas affected by drought are rapidly increasing and need support. The South Australian season has um, slipped back significantly in, in, a, in a number of areas and we've now got some um, areas that are well and truly experiencing drought conditions. What started as probably 10 to 15 percent of the state earlier in the year, now it could be even as high as 30 or 40 percent of the state. Now, anyone who was anyone was frantically attacking social media with pictures of their new strawberry dish, including parliamentarians of all stripes. (laughs) But there's now cold hard cash. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has announced $350,000 will go to specific strawberry industry measures, including supply chain assurances, food safety and technical support. While it's not clear who exactly will receive that funding and how it will roll out, it's part of his $1 million package for the industry announced last week. It's hoped the growers that do get the money will use the funds to invest in tamper-proof packaging, communications and detection. The Prime Minister says the balance of the $1 million will go to Food Standards Australia Australia and New Zealand to better resource the regulator in this space. Scott Morrison says there's plenty of lessons to learn from the scandal. There are other sectors out there where there may be weather type incidents that produce this sort of result or other types of incidents and how we can ensure that our response is quick as it needs to be. I mean this came fast, it was a real flash and it, it hit the farmers very hard and very early. Speaking of hitting hard, this is an extraordinary story. Mm. A Northern Territory beekeeper says about one million of his bees have been deliberately killed with an insecticide. Not only that, it's the second suspected poisoning of commercial bee boxes near Catherine in the NT in a year. Sam Curtis found the dead bees inside and near their boxes on a track outside Catherine, a few kilometres from the Victoria Highway in July. Last week, he received confirmation from a laboratory that the bees had died from fipronil poisoning poisoning, an insecticide which is commonly used to kill termites. The hives were about five kilometres from where another beekeeper had about 120 hives of his bees die from the same insecticide last November. Mr Curtis says the loss of bees would set his business back around $20,000. So we had to clean out the comb and the boxes at, by switching frames after they got fresh stuff so it's many residues in there. It's not affecting the brood rearing so they can recover. Otherwise, they were just completely dead. Between all the hives, it'll be about a million bees and since the breeding nukes are quite smaller, I'd say you'd be about the same in the breeding nukes because there's more of them but they are a smaller colony. And it's a bit disappointing when you see them all dead in the box too. They just make a nice thick layer and you can, then you can smell them too. Well, especially seeing as we know that bees are so important and under threat anyway. Mm. There were also some really shocking pictures this week showing hundreds of dead eagles deliberately killed in Victoria. 
Environmentalists are calling for tougher penalties for people who kill or injure protected wildlife. It comes after a New Zealand man was jailed for two weeks and fined $2,500 for poisoning more than 400 wedge-tailed eagles in eastern Victoria. 59-year-old farm worker Murray James Sylvester pleaded guilty to killing the protected birds at Tubbot in East Gippsland between October 2016 and April 2018. The eagle carcasses were found hidden in bush and scrub on three separate farms spanning 2,000 hectares. Defence lawyer Keith Borthwick told the court Sylvester's employer had played a role in the eagle deaths. He said Sylvester was under pressure to increase lamb survival rates. But Environment Justice Australia CEO Brendan Sides says the maximum penalties need to be increased to reflect community values. It does seem that the tools that the regulators have to work with here in terms of the maximum penalties that they could impose uh, are insufficient and haven't kept up with community views as to the seriousness of crimes like this. Clint, we've talked a lot about uh, feed grain mm. running really low around the country. Now there's concerns being raised about the quality of what's being fed to livestock. Getting hold of feed during the drought has seen prices rise and that's causing headaches for the plight of larger livestock producers, but it's also presenting a problem for small animal farms raising poultry. There have also been tales of the feed that they're getting not being up to scratch. Award-winning New South Wales operation Guy and Poultry specialises in heritage poultry and for Hayden McMillan, looking for alternative feed has had a major impact on the operation with a number of birds dying. The quality of the inputs that's going into some of the feeds that we've been buying hasn't been what it should have been. That's just more or less a gut feeling built on results and things we've seen on the farm rather than anything analytical at this point, but tend to think it's getting pretty hard for the mills to uh, source what they need to make top-notch food. The New Zealanders seem to be pipping us at every available post, mm. <laughs> including wool, because there's been this real trend for consumers increasingly demanding ethically sourced wool, especially from sheep that have not been mules. And New Zealand has the front running on us once more. Yeah, they've actually got a ban on surgical mulesing due to come into effect on October 1st. And Australian wool growers could benefit from the internationally recognised ZQ Merino fibre program to keep up. Australia is one of the only places in the world that continues the practice of mulesing, where sheep have the wrinkled skin on their breech surgically removed to prevent the painful and deadly condition known as fly strike. But there's plenty of wool growers here who have ceased the procedure and found alternatives. The ZQ Merino program is an independently audited program designed to give confidence to consumers regarding ethically and sustainably produced wool. Managing Director of the Australian Wool Network, John Colley, says the increased demand for ethically produced wool continues to rise and Australian producers need to ensure they're evolving with the industry. Brands are now demanding, and this is extremely strong through Europe and America, that all sheep be treated in a, in a very humane way and they really want the practice to stop. So the demand, there are now there are now brands out there demanding that they only buy non-mules wool, and this can lead to premiums in the market, which are absolutely real and deliverable. Clint, thanks so much for that news wrap. It was a bit of an obituary for dead animals this time. <laughs> it was a little bit sadder than usual, but important. Thank you. No worries. More details on all those stories, if you're keen to read about them, can be found on our website. Just head to the RN homepage and look for a country breakfast. Everyone has an opinion. Just look at the comments section on the internet. But some opinions are informed and others not so much. So what do the experts think? Find out on The Roundtable. 
That's RN's weekly forum exploring the big ideas and issues in national and international affairs. You can even have your say. Join Hugh Rimmington for The Roundtable every Monday at 1.30 or hear it anytime you like on the ABC Listen app. This week, a behind-the-scenes look at the Australian pearling industry. After a tough few years, things are starting to look up. Women are pulling on their hiking boots for a trip to the Victorian high country. We deliver meals on wheels at a remote Aboriginal community and meet some teenage girls pushing the boundaries when it comes to their future careers. Daily people tell me I can't do it because I'm a female, but... I think that it's important to do what I like and what I enjoy. I do have an eye for detail. I think that helps a lot and, you know, I'm not really scared of all this stuff, so I like it, (laughs) yeah. Jadalyn Ortega there, going for a trade apprenticeship next year, hopefully as a heavy diesel mechanic. Her story later in the show. But let's begin in the Kimberley, where some real gems are being harvested from the sea. And you can sort of get a sense of the depth of the colour and luster and of, of those of those pearls in a natural state now. You know, that's straight out of the oyster. Yeah. And you know, they look pretty impressive, right? They do. And that's and that's the Australian story. Yeah. That's why Australia's always had the, the, the finest pearls in the world, and you know, to this day we still do. And, and this is what the rest of the world wants their pearls to look like. James Brown is a third generation pearl farmer in Western Australia's Kimberley region. He's looking at some of the gems being harvested this year at the family's Signet Bay Pearl Farm, about two hours' drive north of Broome. He's pretty pleased with what he's seeing. 2016 crop. And you roll them out into your hand, you can get a sense of... They're all different, aren't they? Each and every one. Predominantly white. Hello, I'm Courtney Fowler. Things are starting to look up for the local pearling industry after some pretty tough years. A mystery disease wiped out huge numbers of wild stocks of the Pintada Maxima pearl shells, which were once abundant in this region. To recover, the team here at Signet Bay Pearls started producing some of their own shell in a purpose-built hatchery. Five years on, they're finally reaping the rewards of that investment, harvesting the very pearls that started off life here in the shed. Yeah, hatchery technology is, is certainly the, uh, the new world of pearl farming and, uh, and the new world of kind of molluscan aquaculture in general because uh, it's what allows us to control breeding programs. So we still use wild shell. It's still really important to our program and to be honest most of our pearls in the industry are still grown with wild shell but we're using the hatcheries to run the breeding programs and, and, and eventually they will probably lead to a, you know, a difference in productivity. So these little babies here that are spawning, um, what's the process from here? How, how long does it take for them to end up out in the sea lease there? Well, most of their siblings are already out there. So after you've spawned the animals uh, and, and uh, you've got your different family lines going, so that's basically keeping males and females separate as opposed to you know, a coral spawning where everything's mixed up. That's what we do in the hatchery. Now, once we've got them settled onto the sediment slats here at about sort of two or three millimetres in size, which is somewhere between 50 and 60 days after spawning, they go out to the farm. So most of their siblings are already on the farm uh, and growing away. We've just kept these in the tank so we can observe these every day and we can see how they perform uh, in different conditions or if something happens to the ones on the farm, 
uh, we can start doing some testing uh, on those shell out there. So if they get challenged by something and we find higher mortalities, we work with the fish uh, health labs in Perth and we'll be able to test against these ones. For James Brown, ongoing research and development is the key to the industry's future survival in a growing global market. He's also keen to raise the profile of the local industry as they struggle to compete against cheaper, mass-produced Asian pearls. We've been working on a whole range of things that, which, are, which are slowly but surely starting to pay off now. And, and that's just the way this, this game is. Every time we do a hatchery run, we're really thinking five to ten years down the road because it'll take five years before you get a pearl, right? Mm. So a lot of the investments we do, a lot of the decisions we make are five and ten years out. Mm. So, you know, when you're thinking constantly five and ten years out, it, it's, uh, it's kind of hard to get excited day to day. You, you've really got to play this long game. And, um, and I think we, we're starting to feel those, those things paying, uh, paying off now. And I feel like we're on the cusp of something. So I'd like to say that in another, another few years, maybe we've actually turned the corner and, and, and the industry is getting back into a sort of a ramp up phase because we've, uh, you know, we've figured out a couple of key things. And just um, through the door here, we can see some of the work that your pearl technicians are doing with some um, some oysters fresh off your sea leaf. Shall we go and have a look and see what they're doing? Yeah, after you. So this is where the, the magic happens, is it, Jack? Yeah, so you can see the tanks uh, full of shell at the back there, and the guys are pegging those. So what we're doing is we're changing the water level, and we're trying to replicate the tide to get the oyster to relax and the guys are, are literally catching the oysters whilst they're relaxed, they're putting a peg into them and then those pegged shell are being presented to the technicians who are, who, uh, are either performing first operations and that's the grafting operation to set up a first pearl, set up a, a pearl sack and get a pearl growing and over on the left hand side you can actually see Mike um, harvesting some pearls that have been growing for the last two years. So we've got two different things happening in the shed at the same time today. Yeah. One of the most skilled jobs on a pearl farm is that of the pearl technician. They're the ones responsible for delicately placing the nucleus into the oyster shell, which will then hopefully develop into a pearl in years to come. Rose Crisp is a pearl farmer in her own right, coming from Broken Bay Pearls on the Hawkesbury River near Sydney. She also happens to be a very skilled pearl technician, and she's helping out at Signet Bay at the moment. You're whizzing through, you're making it look extremely easy, but what you're doing is actually, if I describe it, um, you've got maybe an inch to work with there and you're putting in your surgical tools um, to, to put a, to nu a nucleus, is that right? Yeah, a nucleus. To put a nucleus in. I mean, it's you've really got centimetres to, to work with. I mean, how are you... Can you describe what you're doing as you're popping the nucleus in? Okay, so I'm, I'm just going to make an incision in the oyster and then I'll cut into the area that I want to place the nuclei and then I'll place a nuclei back in that in that incision uh -huh. and then I'll place a piece of the graft tissue in as well so I, I get that right up against the nuclei and then hopefully I can get a lovely pearl out of that. That's the idea of it. So um, it's always a challenge, though, isn't it? To, to get what you really want to get out of it. <laughs> Part of James Brown's plans to promote the local industry involves developing a pearl trail where tourists can explore Australia's unique pearl culture. Signet Bay has joined forces with Rose Chris from Broken Bay Pearls 
to get this scheme off the ground. By joining forces, um, we, we, we want to try and create an opportunity to raise awareness about these Australian products. We want to try and educate consumers about them, what's great about them. We've just seen the response from the public. They, they, they're really intrigued. I mean, pearling's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard work, it's loud noises, it's, uh, it's long days, it's, you know, it really is the grunt behind the glamour kind of thing, but the Australian public really resonates with it. So we've, we've picked up on how good that is. I mean, we're 200 k's from Broome and yet we're getting 10 to 15,000 people a year come out here to, to have, a, have an experience and get to know the industry a bit better. And I think Broken Bay, we're hoping, whilst Broken Bay, to be honest, is probably one of the best kept secrets in New South Wales, we're really hoping the people of New South Wales will have a similar response to this wonderful, locally grown, local, local product. There's something magical about, particularly these Australian hills, they're little and they're rugged and they're so unforgiving. <laughs> Meet Ness Hinneberg the French teacher turned adventurer from Mansfield in Victoria's high country. Hi, I'm Megan Ruth, and there's a lot more to this story than a simple hike up a hill. Ness Hinneberg is taking women, most of them from cities, to some of the country's highest peaks, and she's moving mountains in her own way. Women have this wonderful tendency to appreciate as opposed to conquer. They don't go out to win at a mountain and say, yes, we have dominated it and we've gone to the top and now it's at our mercy. They get to the top and they go, wow, that was a journey. They're taking the initiative and they're going out of their own volition to say, we want to explore this area and we want to do it on our terms without having a man holding our hands the whole way, whether it be on, on their own or in a group. And that's the most exciting part because they're bringing their friends out to see them coming out to these areas just for the sake of being out here, to explore, to test themselves, to get to that peak and go, we've arrived. Now let's look out at this beautiful scenery and really cherish what we've done. Ness Hinneberg was working a nine to five job before she took a leap of faith and followed her heart to the hills. To be honest, it came out of a pretty dark place. I was not in the greatest health and I was tired of doing what I was doing. And I was discovering more and more that being outside with a pack on was what I wanted to do. I just wasn't sure how at that particular point. And I was on these forums and there were all these women who said, I want to go out hiking, but I don't know where to start. I don't know who to go with. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to take. I don't know if I'm fit enough. And just in that instant, I sort of thought, well, I can do that. There we go. Social media accounts are full of friends standing triumphantly atop mountain peaks or powering up sky-high ridges. But is it all fun and games? I love being out here. I love doing what I do. And there's been a couple of times where I think I've been more enthusiastic than the clouds. I'm like, I love the sunset! Um, and so it really does come from a genuine place. But sometimes you have to shelf your own fatigue, discomfort, whatever, to keep the group going. For first-timers, Ness Hinneberg recommends starting small. Pack light and wear good quality hiking gear, breathable and waterproof. And take plenty of breaks to catch a breath and to appreciate the little things. For a lot of women, this is their first time walking up a mountain. It's kind of a big deal. That look of triumph, even though they're exhausted and they're short of breath, it's, it's for them a miraculous thing to be doing. You know, we're hiking up a mountain. 
doesn't matter whether it's a little one like this or Mount Buller or way out the back, there's that, that, that sense of awe that they experience and that sense of, yeah, achievement. Ness Hinneberg now works in the Victorian high country year-round. During winter, she's skiing, and in summer, she's hiking and mountain biking. And it's exactly where she belongs. It's been a journey that I never thought I'd go on, um, because you know, if you had told me five years ago when I was doing something completely different that I'd be out here taking women hiking through the mountains, I would have just gone, no, <laughs> not a chance. But now I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Ness Hinneberg, living her dream in Victoria's high country. You're with A Country Breakfast on RN. Still to come today, a power tools workshop opens up career options for teenage girls. And breakfast is being served at the Alperulam Aboriginal community. Every morning, just before 7 o'clock, Nivanka Nemo and Cameron Long start preparing breakfast in the kitchen of this community centre. They're feeding the elderly residents and those with disabilities who live in the remote Indigenous community of Alperolum. It's a small desert town on the Northern Territory Queensland border. Hello, I'm Lucy Murray. The mornings are still cold out here at the moment, so something nice and warm is called for. Navanka is cooking up a huge saucepan full of porridge, which we packed into containers and delivered around the community. It's a bit like a Meals on Wheels service. She even picks up their dirty laundry along the way. Porridge, and they love porridge because it's lovely and hot, not too cold. Also some bacon and eggs, is that a favourite? Um, bacon and eggs for clients who come in. And how many clients do you have at the moment? We have 25 clients, plus the, the NDIS client. And what do the old people think of getting their food delivered? Oh, they love the meal. Um, what sort of food do they like you cooking? They like kangaroo stew. We um, order kangaroo diced meat that comes from the truck. Sometimes we get tail, kangaroo tail. And the laundry, how does that work? When we drop off the food, well, the clients come in and say, ask if they need their washing done. So we just go and ask whoever needs their blanket to be done. We'll drop it off after we finish our job, our work. This work in the Upper Rolling community is a major milestone for Nevanka Nemo. As a mum of six, it's her first paid job and she's gaining valuable skills along the way. Working is the good thing to do, getting up every morning, working. Well, for me, working for my first time is good. I found it good. This is your first job? My first job. How's it changed your life? Well, it's changed my life because I had six children and and I had to take time to grow all my kids up and now they all grown up and I'm learning. And does that structure in your day, that getting up every morning to do something, what's that like? It's like you're getting up in the morning and doing things for your kids. But you're getting up in the morning, going to work, it makes your life different. And the money, has that meant you can do more things and more for your kids? Yeah, it's more, it's changed more for us, for me, and my partner and my kids. And you're doing some training as well, you're getting some certificates? Yeah, can't wait till I get my first certificate. Well, if we start getting a certificate, that way we can get a job anywhere. Wanna go to the city, we can get a job anywhere then. Cameron Long is Navanka's partner. They moved to Alperolum from Mount Isa, about 300 kilometres east of here. 
He's busy cooking bacon and eggs for a couple of old stockmen who make their way to the centre each morning for a cooked breakfast. We came back here for yeah, to get, a, get a job and a training because when I heard that they get more training and more opportunity here in Alperton, so we had to come back here and started working and got some training, still doing the training. What sort of training is that? At Cert 2 and Cert 3 training. In hospitality? Hospitality and food handling and all of those. And what does having those certificates mean to, to you and your partner? Oh, it's good because whenever we move to another, another place or another state, you know, we, we're qualified and got more experience and to work somewhere else anyway. Is it a good job? Do you like doing it? Yeah, it's good because working with elders, you get more experience from, from the elders. What do you mean by that, the experience? Learning more about our culture and learning more about how life is and how they ended up living that long. So what do the old guys, what's their favourite meal? Beef mainly, because they are now old stockmen's. They like corned beef, red bones, mistakes. The old droving food? Yeah, old droving food. What about damper? Is that a favourite? Oh, yeah, damper's a favourite. But you're also trying to make them a little bit healthier as well. Yeah, give them healthy food. George Anderson is one of those old stockmen who's come in for breakfast. He likes his beef and damper, the food he used to eat out on stock camps, but he's willing to give the healthy stuff a try too. What do you, what do you think of the food, George? Oh, really great. Bacon and egg. Cameron was saying sometimes he makes you up old drover food. Yeah. What's that? Steak and damper. <laughs> Is that your favourite? Yes. Does he sometimes make you be a bit healthy? Yeah. What sort of food does he make then? Carry on rice and damper. Yeah. Daily people tell me I can't do it because I'm a female, but I think that it's important to do what I like and what I enjoy. Jadelyn Ortega isn't afraid to push the boundaries when it comes to her future. This high school student from Broken Hill in Western New South Wales is going for a trade apprenticeship next year, hopefully as a heavy diesel mechanic. I do have an eye for detail. I think that helps a lot. And, you know, I'm not really scared of all this stuff, so I like it, <laughs> yeah. Hello, I'm Rebecca Lowe. Jadelyn and 15 other young women from Williama High School are taking part in a special workshop today and are being taught how to work with power tools. The workshop is the brainchild of Fee Shearing. She travels the countryside with her salt clinics, empowering women to learn trades, which historically have been a male domain. It stands for supporting and linking tradeswomen. When I started SALT, there was only about 5,500 tradeswomen in the whole of Australia. So we wanted to connect the tradeswomen and make sure that they um, knew about each other. Because when I started in my trade, I never worked with another woman on site at all. So that was a big aim in the beginning. We've definitely succeeded in that aim, but we've also started to... I did lots of research before I started SALT and I wanted to work out what was going to make a difference to enable women to think that they could do this work. And when I looked into the women that are already in the trades, 
they not only had a lot of tenacity, but they had often, more than 50% of them, had been taught how to use tools by family members when they were very little girls, mostly between the ages of 5 and 12. So their fathers, their grandfathers, their uncles, whoever it was in the family had shown them when they were little exactly the way boys used to be taught. And what we're finding that's changing. So we now work in primary schools as well. And when we work in primary schools, we teach boys and girls because we're finding that little boys aren't being taught that these days either. So we're teaching both in primary school. I'm just thinking, I remember being in school in the 80s and 90s and doing woodwork, yeah. but I don't remember the message being I could be a tradesperson either. So is that, is that the difference? This isn't just a general woodwork class, is it? No, this is just, it's a lot, they're life skills because we teach women of all ages. So the youngest were two. We got asked to go into a preschool because the boys wouldn't let the girls play with dump trucks in the sand pit. They said, girls, don't do that. So the preschool asked us to go in and show them that, yes, girls can play with dump trucks in the sand pit as well. And um, so we went in there. And the oldest woman we taught was 96. So we're basically, these are life skills that we're teaching. But the aim is, and it's working, is to actually allow girls and women to realise they can have very successful careers in the trades as well. And I think when you say trade, people just think of a carpenter or a plumber or an electrician or a painter and decorator. What people don't realise is the depth and breadth of the sheer number of trades that there actually are. So tell us about the workshop today. You've got around about 15 students here or so, so 16. So what, what's actually happening here today? So they're actually learning just the in-depth basic use of basic hand and power tools. So for instance we tell them the difference between an impact driver and a drill, how to use the trigger on both, how to, you know, what you should do with terms of drill bits, what you can use in one, what you shouldn't be using in the other. Jadelyn Ortega is attending the SALT workshop today, but she's certainly no stranger to power tools. This student is already studying trade skills at both TAFE College and school. Yeah, I enjoy doing all this stuff. I think it's good for young women to learn about it all. But this isn't the first time you've been involved with doing forms of trade or uh, hands-on work, is it? So what are you studying at the moment? Um, so I'm doing metal fabrication over at TAFE and I've done fitting machining for the past year and I'm really enjoying it over there. So what got you into that? I'm not sure. I've always just had a passion for it. I think it's important for everyone to know how to do it all and all that stuff. So what's metal fabrication for people unaware? It's like welding and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did you first get introduced to it though? Was it an option at school or was it influenced by family? Or? Um, well, I guess growing up I always, you know, helped my pop with doing that stuff. But um, yeah, they offered it out to me because I chose it as electives. And then, yeah, they just realised I had a passion for it and it's gone on from there. You're in a class of all boys, are you guys? Yes, yeah. Um, my TAFE class and also my metal class like here at school um yeah all boys classes and um you know they try and be nice about it but I just show them up that's all good <laughs> so where would you like to eventually work in your when using that skill well I'm not sure I'd like to be a fitter but um I'm going for a few apprenticeships as a heavy diesel mechanic but um hopefully you know I'll get that Jordan Arnold. We're putting together a little bit of a timber joint, um, learning about all different types of trade careers, like different pathways we could go down when we finish school, what we want to do other than uni. Had you uh, played with power tools before? A little bit in timber work during year seven and eight, but other than that, not really. 
And what have you, what's, what have you enjoyed so far today? Pretty much all of it. I like getting my hands dirty sometimes, enjoying it with the girls. So, yeah, it's good fun. Um, Meg. I think I can speak for most girls. Like, we had no idea what we were coming into and we had no idea what even was going on. Um, so What have you learned? What have you learned about what women can do in training? Heaps. Just, it's a big eye-opener that we can actually be an electrician or do this and do that, not just it's a guy's thing. That's Meg, one of the students from the Williama High School in Broken Hill, attending that Power Tools workshop. She was speaking with Rebecca Lowe. Well, many European cultures have made the most of animals they kill for meat for centuries. It's the whole concept that if you're going to kill an animal, not a single bit should be wasted. That's the premise behind mobile butchers like David Bleatherman. Some of them get them tanned. Most don't want them because, like an Angus cow, nobody wants really a black skin sitting on their on their gr- on their floor. But uh, I do have. It's kind of cow racist, isn't it? Cow racist. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. It's, uh, they're, they're just, yeah, it probably is. Uh, but they're just very common. Um, but they, they sort of like things to look pretty. We'll find out more about what David does in a moment. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Is this Blueprint for Living? Yes, indeed. Oh, would you have any activated almonds? I'm afraid not. MYLK milk? Uh, no. Bone broth? No. A bamboo yoga mat, perhaps? Uh, no. A pint of your finest kombucha, then, to be consumed in a leafy bower of fiddle-leaf ferns? Nope. Satisfy your full range of commodity fetishes, Blueprint for Living, Saturday mornings on RN or wherever you get your podcasts. Quinoa. No. A sea kayak trip through the rivers of Venezuela. Get out of here. Hobby farming is quite popular around the country, especially in Tasmania and amongst tree changers. People who move away from the big city to the Apple Isle often want some acreage, a cute cottage in the country with a chook run, maybe a couple of cows. They'll keep the grass short and you get to do that whole paddock to plate thing with the meat. But there is a difficult bit in between the pasture and the table. You have to kill the animal and cut it into pieces. It's a bit much, really, for most people, especially if the animal has become a bit of a pet. So they call a mobile butcher who turns up and turns the animal into meal-sized portions. ABC presenter Joel Reinberger met such a man on a hobby farm in Franklin where Minnie the cow had just been turned into steaks, mince and sausages. Hello, my name's David Bleefman. I'm a mobile butcher in the Hume Valley. Well, I was a normal butcher for 14 years, worked in an abattoir for two years and was living in Smifton, an older fellow by the name of David Butt introduced me to uh, mobile butchery, taught me a few tricks and uh, started from there. So what is the average day for you? Average day can consist of from one, one beast to four or five cattle um, or 30 sheep down to four sheep. Uh, it all depends on what uh, farmers have at the time. 30 sheep in a day? In a day, yes. Um, on the bigger jobs, I do have an offsider that does work with me. Um, we do process pigs, alpacas, have processed horses in the past. Uh, we don't do poultry, but um, the more livestock people have, the more we'll produce, that we'll do for them. Are, are most people farmers who are raising their own meat and you're just coming to help them prep it for their freezer or, or are, are, there, are there other situations that people call a mobile butcher in? 
Most of it is just hobby farmers. We do do the larger farms up in the Midlands because we do cover all of Tasmania. It's not just the Huon Valley where we can go out and where someone's just produced the one animal and it is for them their own consumption. It's not to be on sold as uh, that is illegal. But I have had phone calls from local police that a car has hit an animal and I go out to dispatch it because I know what I'm doing and how to do it properly, um, to do it the most humane way. Uh, some people like to have the on-farm experience just because they know they're getting all their meat back. They know where their animal uh, is at all times because it's in the cool room on their property and they can watch the whole process be involved as little or as much as possible. Um, whether... Uh, they watch me do the slaughter of the animal or just the cut-up side. It doesn't phase me. Um, but at least that way they know the way their animal's been treated. If it's been a pet all its life and then they decide to have it done that way because they know where the animal's gone, um, it works out OK. So what is the uh, a humane method of dispatch these days? Uh, a free bullet, which is uh, fired from a, a rifle. Um, captive bolt guns can work fine in the bigger abattoirs, especially um, a state-of-the-art design where that is as humane as possible in a big system like that. Um, it's always usually one big bolt because their stuff is maintained properly, where the smaller places, it's not as maintained as, as frequently. But I use a free bullet because um, it's not like I can go up to an animal and hold it, hold it in place to be able to dis like humanely slaughter it. I'll uh, use a large calibre gun on cattle, um, usually in the paddock. I don't like them in yards because they get stressed out. They start to move around the yard. Uh, but we try to always one shot per animal. That way you know it's humane. Um, and it will go down straight away. It's not like it gets back up and like a horror movie. But uh, we dispatch the animal, bleed it out, and then we continue the process after about two minutes or so because um, you allow the, the heart to stop. And, yeah, that's the way a humane slaughter should be done. Hence, I like customers to watch the whole process so they know that it was humane. Uh, if you send the animal away, you don't know how it's died. Um, where with this way, you know for a fact that it's died the right way. Um, instantly. Instantly, yes. Now, what's the amount of kit? You've got like a, a, a big ute and a big trailer. What, what do you have here to make this actually happen? So, for instance, on, on the slaughter day, I'll turn up with a different vehicle than I have behind me now. It's um, another Land Cruiser kitted out, winches, all, all the gear for uh, wet paddocks, like for four-wheel drive, basically a four-wheel drive that's kitted out for um, wet conditions with cranes um, and the cool room behind me where I can pretty much go to any property, dispatch the animal and put it into the cool room straight away, then return the following week with this Land Cruiser, which is all kitted out in the back uh, with bandsaws, mincers, sausage fillers, all the bagging and labelling equipment, um, cutting boards. But uh, So this yeah. is basically a complete butcher shop in, in a van and a trailer? That's correct, yeah. Well, the, the cool, room's, cool room is designed to... Keep your meat at a certain temperature all year round, whether it be winter or summer. Um, the cut-up car is designed pretty much as a mobile butcher shop and the other kill car is designed for getting in to different paddocks um, to be able to 
do the dispatch. Now, what happens to all the leftovers? So there's there's the animal's gut, there's the skin, there's the hooves, there's the head. What happens to all of that stuff? Um, so on the kill day, owners are responsible to get rid of the waste. So usually they uh, have a big hole or they burn it. Um, some people do eat some of the offal, uh, especially the livers, hearts, kidneys, um, tongues, cheeks, uh, diaphragm. I mean, cheeks are in demand these days. They cost you like 30 bucks a kilo. They certainly do. So that's one of the um, perks of being the, the owners of the animals that I do. They get the cheeks, um, butcher's, butcher's cut. It's called the butcher's cut because usually the owners don't get them. Um, <laughs> and they love them. They're very tender. but. <laughs> yeah, they get to keep then, and then especially with the uh, horned animals like highlands, they get to keep the big sets of horns. They can keep their hides because I don't take them. Um, I I could take them and sell them on, but what's the point of that where the customer loses out? Um, so what does a customer typically do with a cow hide? Well, usually they some of them get them tanned. Most don't want them because like an Angus cow, nobody wants really a black skin sitting on their on their gr- on their floor but uh i do have it's kind of cow racist isn't it <laughs> <laughs> not really it's uh they're just, yeah it probably is uh, but they're just very common um but they they sort of like things to look pretty it's uh yeah the the more colorful they are the better but i do have some young ladies from signet that come and get hides because they do know that they just get wasted and they try tanning them and um yeah some people like to tan them and keep them but it is a lot of work involved um but a lot of people keep their sheep especially goats they keep all their goats and the alpacas they keep their alpaca skins but um alpaca skins especially they are something quite precious phenomenal they are really good a lot of people have them in their children's room especially when they're getting up in the morning, it's nice and warm on their feet, um, or they have it as an underlay, depending on how good a job they have done of tanning it. Uh, but, yeah. So how often is it a job like this one where there's just one cow? Um, well, at the moment, all the core rooms have just got a single cow in it. Uh, so the first six months of my year consists of a lot of work. You get a lot of demand. Of course, there's a lot of feed around. People have all these animals that they've fattened up after winter and they all rush, 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 need to get it done at last minute and don't realise that sometimes the year I'm booked out for six months. At the moment, we're taking bookings in three months in advance. Um, But single cows, of course, I have so many cool rooms. it It doesn't worry me too much if there's a single cow. But when it comes to sheep, I like... Uh, at least about eight and pigs are like about five minimum um, but depending on where you live uh, there could be travel involved but most of the hill and valley is free travel um, but yeah single cows it works out okay I do it by myself so I do make a bit more money um, it's not like I'm going to be a millionaire tomorrow or anything but <laughs> it's 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 a better it's a better job to have than working in a butcher shop put it that way <laughs> I have heard uh, from a butcher that the, the longer a cow is hung, the better it is. Is that true? Not when it comes to mobile butchery. It's all the way, it's the way it's raised, what it's fed on, and the way it's dispatched. If it's done with one bullet, it's, it's as humane and stri- uh, 
less stressed as possible. Um, so no adrenaline in its system? No adrenaline. Like, you can see when when they get stressed out, if something's transported, it doesn't matter if it's transported five kilometres or it's transported 500 kilometres, it's going to be stressed. The muscle, it's going to get lactic acid build up and muscle burn. It goes a darker mahogany red. But if it's killed properly, all my own personal meat is always hung for six days. That's cattle. Sheep, you can hang for only three days. Sheep don't profit from hanging any longer than that because it's not like they've got a large amount of meat to cool down because all you're doing is getting the meat to set to be able to break it down properly um, but I do hang animals up to 21 days for some customers I've, hang a, I've hung one cow for three months but it ain't no different from one week to three months it, it's, it dries it out that's all it does it changes. It has an, a different taste after 21 days it gets um, I, I say it's like a mushroom flavour which is just the penicillin mould that starts to break down the uh, fibres in the meat. But uh, six days is good. This one here's been hung for 14 days. It's a lot drier. There's not as much blood in the bags, so it works out okay there, but it's for everyone's preference. That was the ABC's Joel Reinberger on a property in Franklin in Tasmania speaking with mobile butcher David Bleithman. When you think of beef, you're probably thinking of a ribeye or a scotch fillet. But what about a Denver cut or the spinalis? A slow meat symposium in central Victoria has heard from farmers and butchers who got to watch a whole beef carcass cut up, learning how to make the most and use every bit of the whole animal. Jess Davis spoke with Adam Danforth, a butcher and educator from Oregon in the United States, who took the workshop. The way that I teach meat and the way that I talk about meat is is quite different than a lot of people do. And Part of what underpins that is a philosophy that has to do in prioritizing flavor over tenderness, which is a concept that most people don't think about. When, when people talk about meat, they pretty much only have a couple different descriptors to pull from. There's a very narrow language that we use to describe what is a really vast subject of meat and all of its flavor opportunities, but we still come back to, is it tender? Did it taste gamey? Is it tough? What was the flavor? And that's pretty much really the only way that we describe it. And what people don't understand is that the relationship between flavor and tenderness is one of opposition. It's an inverse relationship. The conditions in a muscle that create flavor are the opposite of the conditions in a muscle that create tenderness. And so when people revere tenderness as the marker of quality, what they're really losing is the conditions that really create the immense flavor that we, we truly draw enjoyment from. And to take that one step further, when we, eat, when we eat incredible food and we share it with people that we love and care for and we create communities through it, what we're, what we're also really doing is creating these incredible memories around food and having emotional experiences around food. And those things are instigated by the chemicals that are in flavor. It's not instigated by texture. So actually, in in commercialized meat being produced in ways that prioritize tenderness, meaning younger animals and confined confinement and quickened growth and some of those sort of things, what we inadvertently don't realize is that they're also stealing from us an opportunity to formulate really incredible, powerful food memories and emotions through what would normally be conditions that would prioritize flavor. So the way that I teach a workshop like today is by exploring individual muscles 
for the qualities that are unique to each of them based upon their function in the body and how the function of a muscle then relates to the structure which relates to the flavor potential and how we cook it and things like that. So it's an unorthodox way to talk about meat and also to break down meat. But to me, it's the way that people are going to be able to grow in their understanding and also create innovation and in, in cuts and other things. It's easy for me to teach somebody how to cut uh, you know, a scotch fillet steak or how to cut you know, a, a rump roast or something like that. But it's far better for them, for me to teach them why we do certain things like that, why these groups of muscles come together, why we cook things in a certain way, and then allow them to really use that, that foundation of knowledge to create a, a unique style of butchery that, that works for whatever their application is, whether they're cooking or selling or taking it home or whatever it may be. Do you think more people are becoming interested in this kind of meat and, and changing the way we look at it, or it's still very niche? Oh, it's so niche. I mean, there's a movement towards it, but I mean, in comparison to the volume of what's being produced in other methods, it's, it's incredibly niche. But, but we have a powerful voice. And as I travel around the world and teach and try to connect communities around these sort of ideas, I'm also realizing that they're really, um, they're, the, that voice is, is everywhere. And part of how we're going to succeed is by making sure that we all support each other and stay connected in those efforts. Um, I think so much people don't realize what's changed over the last 40 years in meat. And they're becoming, they're beginning to realize some of the impacts. Um, but what it's really going to take is also uh, people's understanding of how the impact of those things not only uh, has a negative effect on our experience of food, but also really an environmental one. And, and when we look at a larger picture of how, how these animals can actually play a role in regeneration of environmental issues, then I think people will really begin to look at it differently. I think so often meat is vilified as being an incredible detriment to the environment and resources and things like that, which it is. But that's not all meat. It's a certain way of, of raising meat. So as, as some people say, it's not the cow, it's the how. You can't vilify the animal as the thing that's creating the problem. It's how that animal is raised. And, and, and beef can just as much be a form of regenerative agriculture as it can be also a form of extractive, destructive agriculture. What kind of feedback do you get from farmers on what you're teaching and, and, and your philosophy on meat? I think that it's, it's great for them to understand this continuity that happens between the life of the animal they see on the farm and, and how the conditions that they prioritize in good husbandry on the farm actually have an inexplicable connection to the experience that people have of actually eating those animals. You know, that the flavor potential in muscles actually develops while an animal is alive based upon activity. Like, these are, these are connections that are being made for farmers that really understand that not only what they're doing as far as good husbandry practices and, and, and stewards of the land have to do with, with um, positive approaches to the treatment of animals and the environment, but also there's no irony to the fact that an animal that's raised better actually also tastes better. 
You know, that's a, an inexplicable connection between the two of them. So I think from a farmer perspective, it's really helpful for them to understand that that work that they're doing on the farm um, reaches far beyond what they end up seeing when those animals are sent to slaughter and end up in a case or at somebody's house or something like that. That, that work that they've done persists through the entire equation all the way to the memories and the sensations that people taste when they eat it. That's Adam Danforth, a butcher and educator from the United States, speaking with our reporter Jess Davis. And that's the program for this week. Thanks to Jack Montgomery Parks for technical production. Stay with us on RN, won't you? More great listening ahead.